If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans uh, chapter 8. It's my habit to read the passage that we are discussing in its entirety, so you know what it says before we get into it. Uh, we're going to read from Romans 8, uh, 26 to the end of the chapter. Um, but most of the message is actually going to be through 26 through 30. The rest is kind of going to be our hymn of response, if you will. Not that Paul wrote a hymn, but in, in context, and as you see, I think that fits really well for expressing and summing up the, the joys that Paul is getting ready to help us understand. So again, Romans chapter 8, most of the leaves have finished turning, so I'm going to start in verse 26. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for me, sorry, intercedes for the saints, I am one of those, according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge to God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And God bless the reading of his worth. There's a whole lot here. He spends actually 25 verses building up to this point, and since we're jumping in in the middle, probably a familiar passage to many of you. Most of us know the past 828, right? Um, most of us have heard the idea of the Spirit interceding for us. These probably are familiar things to those of us who have been in the faith for a while, but the context of all of this is all of chapter 8. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 8, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is what chapter 8 is all about. In the end, it's the statement, and the rest is the proof. And then I, again, verses 31 through 39 are like the Paul's Magnificat, proving there is nothing that can separate us from God in Christ Jesus. Right. So he is building on that point, and we are going to engage in that point point. 
And this is not a hard concept for people to believe, not really. It's really not a hard concept to believe, but what makes it hard is how we feel about it when life gets rough. When suffering enters the picture, that's when we start to doubt, well, is God really going to keep me safe? When do people cave in on their faith? When the going gets tough, right? When they have fit to face losing everything. Not everybody has the courage of Paul to stare death in the face for the sake of the cross, to wear chains for years, to be beaten and mistreated. That's a difficult burden. Paul bore it through suffering. And suffering, again, is where we ought to take our comfort here. If you look at verse um, 17 of chapter 8 again, verse 17, it says, And if children, so these are the people that believe the truth of the gospel, which we've read in Christ Jesus, those are children of God, right? If children, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided, what does it say? That we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Okay, so for the believer, if you are going to be glorified in Christ Jesus, you will suffer in Christ Jesus. That is a twofold charge. We will suffer in this world in some manner because we will be despised by the world. But it also is a reference to how we are joined in Christ. Because as you read in Romans, if we have died with Christ in chapter 5, we are also raised with him, right? So if you are in Christ, and baptism is a picture of being in Christ, you have suffered with Christ, and your sin is dead, right? So that is a picture. So we're talking about salvation. If you are saved, you suffered with Christ. Now, because you suffered with Christ, there will be sufferings in this age, and that's where verse 18 picks up. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with what? The glory that will be revealed in us. Our suffering in this world, whether it be death, persecution, trials, will lead to glory. Now we've got this sticky thing going on in here, though, but it says, provided we suffer. Or if we endure in that suffering, we have these challenges. How can we endure the suffering? Now we get to the question of tonight. Now that we have the context that There is no condemnation. Christ is sufficient to save, to keep us saved, and to maintain our salvation. There is suffering in the world. Do you have what it takes to suffer for Christ? I hope you're thinking about that, and and I, I, I kind of hope that you're doubting it just a little bit so that we can actually gain something from this because here we do not have to doubt our salvation or our ability to suffer because it's not about what you suffer, particularly when we know that suffering for Christ leads to glory. We come to verse 26. It says, Likewise, the Spirit, what? Helps us in our weakness. So now, when you're coming to Romans 8, 28, and when we're looking at this passage, now you must be considering it is a context of suffering for the believer. We do not suffer alone in Christ. It says, The Spirit helps us. And here you read it, the Spirit prays for us, right? He intercedes for us with groanings too deep. And He knows our sorrows, right? He searches the hearts. So we see that. But I have another question for you. Maybe you have this question as well. Is that help enough? Is prayer really all the help I need? Is that all the help that I get? I mean, I'm the one who has to suffer. I'm the one who's putting everything on the line. Is this help really enough to endure? Well, the answer to that question is that salvation, one, is not about your endurance. 
And it's not about you or even choosing God to help you. Our salvation is greater than your suffering, greater than your need, and greater than your weakness. Okay? First thing I want to say is it's not about you. Did you know that? You're not saved for your own purposes. You're not saved even because you need it. You do need it. And it is good for you. But salvation is never and has never been and will never be about us or our struggle. Those are incidentals. And though God being perfect and sovereign has considered and planned for those, our salvation still remains not about us. It is based in all of God. And I mean that in two different ways. Uh, you may pick up, it's based in all of God and all of God. And I say that two different ways because God does it all and all of God does it. So it's like the safety net, right? And it's a threefold safety net. You probably know where I'm going. I think it wasn't just last week you guys had Trinity Sunday. I think I saw that on your thing. But anywho, the whole Trinity is involved in the gospel in its orchestration in its maintaining, and in its end. So when I say all of God, this means the whole person of God is involved, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this passage teaches that the triune God saves us for His glory and keeps us saved for His glory. And this is also consistent with His character. When we look at salvation, it's not just arbitrary that God says, yeah, I'll do this. Because all of God is involved in salvation, it must mean it's consistent with his wrath. It must be consistent with his justice, his mercy, his love. All of God's character has to remain true because God is true. So when we're looking at salvation in its legal terms and in our needing it and deserving all redemption, justification, and so forth, the person and character of God is at stake in salvation and it demonstrates the character and person of God in ways that we never could. But God demonstrated his love, right, while we were sinners. We wouldn't know what the love of God was on a, on a deserving sinner without salvation. God knew that, and God planned it. So, the character of God. And now, check this out in verse 27. We see two words, one in 27. The word is W-I-L-L, when you hear it. And then the second word is purpose. So listen to this. I'm going to read 27 and 28 for us. It says, And he who searches the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, okay, according to the will of God. Interesting how they put that, didn't they? The Spirit does not pray according to your will. The Spirit doesn't even, according to this text, pray according to his own will. He prays according to the will of God. He helps us because it is the Father's will that we are helped. Didn't Jesus said, I will pray the Father, and I and the Father will send you a comforter? So the one that helps us is from the Father and the Son. And of course, he prays for us according to the will of the Father and the Son. They are unified in this purpose. It is according not to your will, although you do have a will that is involved in this salvation, I'm not sure I can accurately understand that point very well, but here, definitely, everything is according to the will of God. Now we continue, verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, to those that are called according to His 
purpose. Now, who is that his referring to? It's referring to God's purpose. So that God sends the helper. God works things together for good according to his own purposes. Not your purposes. You get to benefit from the glory and goodness of God for sure. But again, it's about him. And then as you keep on doing this, it's all about his choices, right? His doing. He what for new, he predestined, he conformed, he glorified, and he justified. Everything that we rejoice about in our salvation, God does it. And then again, as we look at this, this text, we see that the Father is recognized because it distinguishes between the Spirit and God. It says the Spirit intercedes according to God's will. Spirit, God, right? We see the Son is also recognized, isn't it, as the example. So if we're looking at salvation, we see God is recognized as the Father, the Supreme, the God, and the Son is recognized as our example. It says um, that we will be conformed, sorry, in order in verse 29, that he might be the, oh, I missed it. I'll get a running start here. There it is. It is 29. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God's will and purpose is to save us to be like Christ. Christ is our example. He's also the purchaser of our salvation, if we know the content of our faith. And he's doing it according to God. And the Spirit is recognized as the guarantee. He helps us. He helps sanctify us. He indwells us. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 1, you probably know this passage. Ephesians chapter 1, verse uh, 13. I'm probably back up to verse 11 myself. Get a running start. But 11, Ephesians 1, 11 through 13. Yeah, I'll read through 14 because it ends in glory and that's the theme. 11 through 14, Ephesians 1 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having be predestined, another word, according to the purpose, another word that we have, of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, another repetition from Romans, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of the glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, here it is, were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we contain possession of it to the praise of his glory. So now, when you see the Spirit helping us, he helps us to endure so that we receive glory. But now here we know he's the guarantee He's the seal. He's what makes it effective. So now we have, again, all of them intimately involved in our salvation. Right? Now, there's something that people say when they do the gospel here. And when we're looking at Romans, you will see this neglecting side. Most people, when they talk about the gospel, at least in my experience, yours may be slightly different, and that's okay. Because uh, it is true that God saves us from our sin, right? All the sin, though, he saves us from our, the, how, I read it twice this week and I'm forgetting it. But he's, he saved us from the consequences of sin. He saved us from uh, the presence of sin. And I forget the other one. But anyway, past, present, and future, he saves us from sin, right? That's, that's what the gospel does. That's a benefit of the gospel. But it's not about you being saved from your sin, as we have just read, it's according to the purposes of God's will, to Him be the glory. So yes, you are saved 
from your sin. But the other side of salvation, and Paul talks about this an awful lot if you're listening to it, that's the negative. I'm, I'm really big on this in Scripture. Um, and would, you'll probably see it after I say this well. But God wants us to understand His truth. And he, he, he puts it in do-nots and He puts it in do's. Positives and negatives, right? The negative reward of salvation is you will not suffer from sin, right? But that's the negative. There is a positive of salvation. We've already hinted at the glory. But as we look at Romans 8, and as we look even uh, in Ephesians here, we're not just saved from sin, we're saved to something, aren't we? God is working according to His will. So again, not about you. That's something that He wants. It's something that He does. And what did we read in verse 29? He saves us that we may what? Be conformed to the image of his son. So yes, we are saved from the destruction of sin, the consequences of sin, but we're also saved to, as Ephesians 2 says, uh, we are saved for good works, which God hath before ordained. So there is a responsibility with salvation. We are saved from sin because God does it, and God has also saved us to do good works. There are two sides of that coin of salvation, and both are glorious. Both magnify God, and both are a benefit to us. But again, it's according to the counsel of His will. He does it. In fact, and He does it in a way that we should see what it looks like. That's why I said Christ is our example, right? In 1 Peter chapter 2, we get a picture of this. I started this off by saying that we will endure suffering as believers, right? And that Christ is our example. If you turn to 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 2, 19. We'll read verses 19 through 25. Sure I got that right. Ah, Yes. 1 Peter two nineteen through 25, it says, now this is not Paul. Some people give Paul a bad rap and say, well, that's just Paul. Well, guess what? This is Peter confirming this. The one who also confirms Paul as an apostle, right? As in he writes to you, it is scripture and all of his writings. But anywho, two nineteen says, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, being called to suffer. Because Christ also suffered, and here's the kicker, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live in righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, Christ. So again, Christ suffered as our example. He didn't deserve it. We do. And we receive grace, and we suffer according to the example of Christ. So we suffer because Christ suffered. If you, again, Romans 8, what did it say? And verse 17, we read, Provided we suffer for him, we may also be glorified with him. Christ suffered and was gloried. He was given a name above every name, right? 
the name by which every uh, knee shall bow in heaven and earth. Now, how can you have confidence to endure this suffering knowing that's what you're called to and knowing it's for the purposes of God? Well, I'm glad you asked that. There are so many supports. It's not just prayer. And I, I hate saying just prayer because prayer is powerful and prayer is something. But God has done so much more. He has put his whole self into it. And so as we look at verse 29, this is where it comes in. This is the proof that God has given us that we can have confidence not only in our salvation, but to preach salvation, knowing that those who are his will respond. We can have boldness in our faith to suffer and to preach and to live as we are called because of verse 29. It says, for those whom he foreknew. He foreknew us. Now, what does that mean? That's an interesting thing. John MacArthur likes to relate that to the, the euphemism of in, used in the Old Testament scriptures for knowing, right? The most popular one I can think of that you probably remember would be, and Joseph did not yet know his wife when she was with child, right? That is a term of intimate knowledge, right? It's not a dirty term. It's just a term that means intimate knowledge, and in that context, it means a specific kind of intimate knowledge. Here, God has an intimate knowledge of you, a relationship, a knowing before. That is what is going on here. If you turn to Psalm 139, this idea is presented several places. Um, I'm just going to pick three verses of Psalm 139 for the sake of, sake of time. Verses 13 through 16, you'll see how this is done. It says of God, you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's new womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows very well. My frame was not hid from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So now not only do you see God as creator, but you see foreknowledge as one of intimate knowledge. Here's the thing about um, foreknowledge. It's, it's not just God knowing what's going to happen beforehand. And then because he knows this is going to happen, he's going to react. That's a reactionary God. That's not a sovereign God. And as you read all of this passage, you see that God is sovereign. That's why he can say there is no condemnation in those in Christ Jesus. That's why we say death, life, angels, principalities, nothing that is created can separate us from the love of God. Because God chose. When you look at this passage particularly, people like to think of the creation and the value of life, which are good things. But I think we miss verse 16. It says, um, In your book were written every one of the days... For me, right? As the, I'll read it. It says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. He made the days for you as he made your body for you, is what Psalm 139 is saying. So not only did he just set the world loose, he didn't just set the world loose and say, Have at it. This is my good plan. He says, No, this day was for this purpose and for you. He was sovereign, he knew, and he wrote it before it happened. And then he made it happen. That's foreknowledge. 
it's also the idea of being saved um, by choice, not by reaction. Out of love, God knows that we will be saved for glorification, and therefore he chooses it to happen. That's what foreknowledge represents. He knows and he wants it to happen. It's very closely related to some of these other ideas here, um, but it is there. Again, I mentioned chosen. That's actually the next word. If we back in Romans 8, what does it say? Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. This is a positive term. It literally means to determine beforehand. Saying this is going to happen. Boom. We can predetermine things, but we don't know the future. So usually we predetermine things. If this happens, I'm going to do this. If this happens, I'm going to do that. That's human predetermination. That is not God. It's not an accident. It's not an afterthought. It's specifically planned. That's predestined. A choice. So he knew, he desired, and he chose us. That's what God has done. Okay? And now he, he chose us to be saved. And I, I forgot to mention this one before, but in that intimate knowledge, in that choosing. He saved us for a purpose. You remember that? We mentioned that. And it's not just he chose any who will say the, the, the sinner's prayer. That's not how it works. He didn't save those. He's not collecting sinners for, for the sake of collecting sinners. Yes, the call goes out to all the earth. Yes, anyone who believes can be saved. That's 100% true. But in saving us for a purpose, there is a deliberate choice and plan. How many of you have ever met a pack rat in your life? Have you met a pack rack? A couple of you? What does a pack rack save things for? Do they have an intentional plan for that thing? Not the ones that I know. I might use that someday. Oh, that's valuable. And they say that, and then they throw it in a pile with 27 other things just like that. And they haven't used those 27 other things in 10 years, right? That's not salvation when God chooses us, Okay. That's not what he saves us for to add us to the collection. I might have a purpose for you. He does have a purpose for us. That's why he foreknew us. That's why he predestined us. In fact, Paul talks more about the predestined us. He predestined those who believe to the riches and glory in Christ. We've hinted at that tonight when we read the glories. Those who suffer with him are glorified with him. He's predetermined that we have glory. He's predetermined that we will be like Christ. That is a purpose. That is reflected in foreknowledge. That is reflected in predestination. It is reflected in the fact that he called us. 29 continues. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. An interesting word there. What do you think of when you think of called? I don't know what you think. I know what I think of, but... It's an interesting word. The theologians that I've been studying say that is a reference not just to like uh, a general call out in, in the field to anyone who can hear you and you can't see anybody. The idea in term is an effectual call. Okay? The way I like to think of this is he makes them hear. Again, that purpose. When he calls you, he calls you for a purpose. And he, he also gives you the ability to hear is the implication in that effectual call. How many of you know the story of Lazarus? Do you guys remember Lazarus? I, some of you. 
Remember, he was dead for four days in the tomb. He was a good friend of Jesus, and the sisters were weeping, right? Remember him? Uh, how many of you have seen a dead man get up and walk? Let alone when his flesh is already rotting after four days of being dead. Nobody, right? Can that dead man hear? No. But when Christ spoke, did he hear? Yes, he did. Did he hear because Lazarus was a wonderful person? Did Lazarus hear because of anything that he wanted to do or could do? He called Lazarus by name, and Lazarus responded because he enabled it as the Lord of life. He effect made it an effectual call. Lazarus, come out. Those whom he foreknew, he says, come out. He makes it possible. In fact, it, we were in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 2 gives us this idea as well. Uh, I think it's just verses 1 through 3. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. This is you. You are Lazarus if you believe in Christ Jesus. And you, verse 1, were dead in your trespasses and sin. If you're dead, can you hear? Can you do anything other than what a dead person does? A dead person does do something, by the way. They decay and they stink, right? They turn, they, that's something they do, right? So that's what they do, and this is how he describes it. In your trespasses and sin, which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is not work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Dead in your trespasses and sins, just like Lazarus can't do anything about it, even if you wanted to. Well, you're dead. You don't want anything at that point. So when Christ calls us dead in our trespasses of sin, if we hear, it's because he makes us hear. If we live, it's because he makes us live. He knew us, he planned us, he chose us, and he, he saves us because of allowing us to hear. And what do we hear? And I'm going to continue in Ephesians because I can. Verse 4, the great but. But God, being, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and has seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's the glory. God did it. You were dead, but God. That's not about you. It's about what God has done. He foreknew us. He predestinated us. He called us. Well, that verse isn't over yet. There's more proof that God has got a plan and that God knows what he is doing. He says, and those in verse 30, whom he called, he also justified. Justified. Now, there's two terms for justification, and God has done both of them. There is to be declared just, right? And he has justified us legally by declaring us just. Just. But we, if, you, if you know much, you know that people can't always be trusted, and some people get off because of a legal loophole, right? They were declared just. They know they were wrong. Everybody knows they're wrong, but the evidence wasn't submitted correctly, or there was something that got them off the hook, and they are declared not guilty, right? They get off. That's declared just. Are they actually just? Is it actually good? No. So there is that declaration, which sometimes can be true and sometimes can be not. God has justified us and that he has declared us just. Okay, he has the power to do that. But it must be consistent with his character because all of God is involved in salvation, right? And God cannot 
do wrong. Abraham know this. Will the Lord, the judge of the earth, do wrong? By wiping out the righteous with the wicked in Sodom and Gomorrah? No. He can't do that. So God cannot declare us just unless the payment has been made. So when he justifies us, he declares us just. When he justifies us, he also fulfills the requirements of the law. Those whom he called, he justified. How does that work? Well, because God is good, if Christ paid your debt to sin, would God be just trying to squeeze that same penalty and debt from you again? Is God going to steal from you? Is God going to require a double payment? Is that right? If he wasn't going to kill the righteous with the wicked, would he take a double payment? No. So God cannot take two payments for one transaction. That would be stealing. You know that. I mean, you should feel guilty if, if that happens on your bank statement, right? They, they credit it to you twice and you only return one item. That would be an issue. And God understands that. He's not going to sin. So when he justifies us, he also provides the way to satisfy the law. So that not only does he declare us just legally, uh, no double jeopardy, you can't get there. He makes it legal and right and good because the payment for the law is satisfied in Christ Jesus. So those whom he called, he justified. He did it, not about you. And he did it in Christ Jesus. He predestined, he called, he justified. And here's my fav- favorite one because it, um, it is the end game and we'll get it to do this in eternity. The rest is all inside time from our perspective, but this one will be for eternity. It says, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, that's a present tense. We do have the glory of God. I think that may be one reason why Jesus says, let your light shine before men. You remember that Mount Transfiguration? Remember that? The glory of Christ was actually bursting out of his body, and they said, they didn't know what to do. They were scared spitless, and Peter put his foot in his mouth, right? Right? The glory of Christ was shining through. We are being conformed into his image, etc., and he says, you have been glorified. Why? Because you are an example of grace, not because you're going to shine bodily in this day and age. We may when we have heavenly bodies. I don't know. You can use your imagination on that. But now we are glorified in Christ because we are free from the penalty of sin. And we are free from slavery of sin as we read Romans. Sin still exists. The master of sin still exists, but we're no longer a slave. We just bump into him in the marketplace of this world. And, do, and we have the habit of sin, but it does not have power over us. That is glorious. This is present tense. We have glory. We are being glorified. It's an increasing glory as we are conformed to the image of Christ. In other words, of putting this is you are sanctified. That's what this glory is talking about. And sanctification is a process. You are set apart for God now, and you are growing up in that holiness and set-apartness. So you literally, when you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, have been glorified, have been sanctified. And now... The Spirit says you are being conformed to the image of Christ. You continue to be sanctified because of the work of the Spirit. That's how he helps us in our weakness, by the way, by making us like Christ, by praying for us, by being with us, by showing us the truth that Scripture reveals for us. So again, God hasn't left us alone to suffer. It's going to be a rough ride. I don't know where it's going to go. I I wonder sometimes looking at it and how our world has been. There are good things and there's bad. Most of the time I see the bad. I've 
and, and shudder to think what my grandchildren will go through. But then I hear my dad saying the same thing about us and my grandpa. So God is good. He has been faithful since creation, and he will be faithful. And because of that, we can say our salvation is not about us. It's not accomplished by us in any sense. Nor is our salvation even really maintained by us. This is why we can have confidence in our salvation, in our preaching of Christ, in our suffering. Christ, uh, preaching of Christ, Christ does it. He guarantees it all. We can preach Christ crucified and not worry about the consequences. Well, we lose our likes on Facebook. Hmm? Will we lose our church building? Will we lose our nonprofit status as a church? Eh, don't worry about it. We don't have to worry about the consequences because God will call all that he has chosen. This is why we can preach Christ saves all who believe and then ask, do you believe? Again, that confidence is summed up. Here's our song that I'd like. Well, we'll, we'll close with a real song, but as far as the message goes, I want you to think of this as a closing song on these great and glorious truths. Paul asks you a question, and he answers it. He loves doing that, by the way. He does it a lot in chapters 9 through 11. But 31 through 39, I'm just going to read it for you one more time. It says, What shall we say to these things that we have just been talking about? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are good. And, and you are great. Lord, may we rejoice in the wonders of our salvation, knowing that it's all about you and that we get to share and revel in that beautiful glory. Lord, I pray that we would be confident with our zeal of proclaiming Christ because we, he loved us, because we know the truth. Let us be confident. Lord, I pray that you'll teach us to endure suffering and to ignore the, the worry for doing what is right. Teach us to endure as a good soldier. And Lord, I pray your grace. May your gospel be effective here tonight as we hear those either in helping us as we strive to be more like Christ or in allowing somebody to hear for the first time that Christ died for them. We ask your blessing and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. We have one more song before the benediction. Um, it's number 203 in your hymn book. We'll do the first and the fourth verse, number 203.
bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace in the name of Christ. Go in his grace this week and always. You are dismissed.